Hello again, everyone. Welcome to Pirates Talk. As the reality of the COVID-19 shutdown hits us all, we realize how much sports is a true getaway for us. Getaway from our everyday life. As many have said, it's the toy department of life. But life in America today has a much different look than just a few weeks ago. I hope all of you remain safe and healthy. Practice safe socializing. Six feet away is the rule. And while the trajectory of the virus is such that we ultimately will know people who contract the disease, I pray that the extent of our contact with COVID-19 is limited. On a brighter note, the awards keep coming in for Miles Powell. In addition to being named a consensus All-American by the Associated Press, he was accorded the same honor by the Sporting News. First Team All-America by the U.S. Basketball Writers Association and second team by the National Association of Basketball Coaches. And you can vote for Miles for several major awards that are still to be determined. The Wooden Award is open for voting at wendys.com slash wooden dash award dash vote. I'll give that again. wendys.com slash wooden hyphen award hyphen vote. The Naismith Award voting takes place at naismithfanvote.com, and you can vote for Miles for the Jerry West Award at hoophallawards.com. Now on to my guest. He is one of the best play-by-play voices in the country. There is no sport that he can't do, but he has made his bones in basketball and the NFL. The longtime voice of the Nets, both in New Jersey and Brooklyn with the Yes Network, Ian Eagle also works for TNT during the NBA playoffs and is a signature voice at CBS doing college basketball and the NFL. We've known each other for nearly 30 years, and it's my pleasure to welcome Ian Eagle to the show. Well, Ian Eagle, what are you doing these days to stay busy as uh, we've all come to this shutdown? Yeah, Matty Locke, it it has been jarring, the domino effect. Uh, obviously, this time of year, I would be knee-deep in NCAA tournament and a lot of prep work. And probably the most challenging two weeks of my broadcast year, juggling various assignments. So to go from 120 miles per hour to zero, uh, it's it's an odd feeling to... Uh, not have to prepare for anything, no research, uh, no uh, no dealing with my my broadcast boards and stats. Uh, it's it's been very unique, uh, contemplative in many ways, and filling time fortunately with family. My whole family did get home, and we like each other. So that part, <laughs> <laughs> that part is has been a positive. Yeah, some of that is true on this end. Not that I like my family. I like them all. But uh, <laughs> some of them have gotten home. Some of them have stayed away. That's just the nature of it. Uh, they're a little older than your children. And so uh, even though uh, Noah's doing wonderfully well with the L.A. Clippers, he's a, he's a man now. But uh, mine are a little older than yours. And so the only one who's really come home is uh, our youngest, Liam, who's a senior at URI and finishing up a research project. But yeah, I get it. You know, you get used to being without them. And then it's nice when they come back again and you can spend some time, some really uh, a lot of time, some real quality time with them. Yeah, it's been an unexpected reunion, Matt. And for all uh, the reasons that uh, I would never wish upon Mm -hmm. any of us, but like everybody else, you're trying to find silver linings. And uh, for us, at least, it's it's been uh, the best part of it. 
is just being together. But uh, the the strange part has been going to sleep, not feeling any of that normal stress that's job-related, broadcast-related. There are other feelings of anxiety based on what's happening in the world. But like you, I have that that feeling normally going to bed of, all right, I've got a catalog in my head, what my day is going to look like tomorrow and how to break it up and how to compartmentalize. And that has been very bizarre not to not to think of things in those terms. The days of the week at this stage are meaningless. Tuesday is Sunday. Friday is Wednesday. Uh, there's no rhyme or reason to it. And uh, that part has has been off-putting, to say the least. Without a doubt. And of course, this is a worldwide crises. And so sports takes a back seat. But as I mentioned in our open, uh, it is the toy department of life. And you realize how much uh, an important role it played because there's nothing on. There is a listen. I'm not watching a skipping stones competition. Do you know what I mean? Like, no. okay, there's a straight. I'm not no. watching that. That's, that's not for me. So I've been trying to find some other things to do, but you mentioned the abruptness of it and it, it was building. We saw it happening, whether it was the tennis tournament out uh, in California, Indian Wells that said, okay, we're not going to play or whether it was pl- teams and, and leagues saying, well, we might play in front of empty buildings. And that was your case. The NBA in California at any rate, California came out and said, Hey, no way we're having in the northern part of the state fans come in. You were getting ready to do a game between the Warriors and the Nets, and you were preparing to do it in front of nobody, right? Yeah, Matty, two weeks ago, I worked a, a Clippers-Warriors game on a Tuesday night for TNT with Stan Van Gundy, and I had never been to the new arena, the Chase Center. Went there early. We did a hit for their pregame show, so we ended up spending a lot of time at the arena, and I did feel... Uh, this this strange vibe. There was a tentativeness from security staff, from ushers, and something was beginning to build in that area. And the scuttlebutt was that the Thursday game between the Nets and the Warriors would have no fans. So everybody was on a high alert. The game went on. Clippers blew out the Warriors. It felt like a normal NBA game. All the game operations, the music, uh, the in-between action activities, the halftime act, all of that was pretty normal. But the look around on people's faces didn't feel quite the same. There was this general consensus developing that this might be the last game that feels like uh, a usual, normal, run-of-the-mill game. The next day, the Nets had stayed overnight in Los Angeles, and they were traveling to San Francisco, and I was in contact with our producer, Frank DeGrace, who you worked with, terrific uh, producer who's been with the Nets for 20-plus for years. And he made mention of the fact that uh, everything he's heard is – we're going to do this game with no fans. We discussed some of the logistics of where our broadcast would be located. Would be We'd be right next to radio with the Golden State Warriors TV and radio be right next to us with no fans. Would there be crossover on the broadcast? Just detailing some of the specifics on how it could affect the on-air product. That night, the Nets got in. They took their time coming from L.A. They ended up staying uh, for some extra time. And I explained to him that the city of San Francisco was very much heading towards a lockdown. And 
they were not feeling it in L.A. That was not the feeling in Los Angeles. So when the Nets finally got into the Bay Area, I think it was the first time that it hit them that things are changing dramatically in different parts of the country. President Trump spoke that night, Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern time, and you could feel a shift. And then about an hour and a half after that, the Rudy Gobert situation came to a head. And that was it. The NBA suspended action. I then got on a red-eye flight immediately to get back to the East Coast. The Nets were staying the night because they couldn't get their plane in time. And a few days later, we found out that four Nets had tested positive for COVID-19. And that was an eye-opener. Kevin Durant went public with it. I think his intention was to try to affect the stigma in a positive way and indicate to people that this could happen to anybody and try to play a, a key role and have an impact in widening the conversation, which it did. Uh, but since that point, it, it's hard to believe it's only been two weeks. So much has changed. And uh, I got to tell you, from uh, a personal standpoint, uh, looking back on that time and everything that was evolving very quickly, uh, it's hard to believe that we were even at a stage where we thought this league could continue in any form. All it took was one positive test for one player. And that's what we're looking at moving forward as the NBA is coming up with provision A, provision B, provision C, D, as many options as possible. The one thing, the fly in the ointment, is one positive test for a player and or coach and or staff member, and then you have to shut it down again. It is a new normal that we're trying to get adjusted to. There's no question about it. Um, and in the NHL, there's only been a couple of cases, both in Ottawa, two players have tested. They've remained unidentified. But at this point, I can't imagine that there aren't others around the league that who have, you know, who have not contracted the virus. It's so widespread, but it's not quite the same as, as the NBA. I, I'm wondering, and, uh, you know, you don't have to answer it, but were you able to in New Jersey where it was hard to get a test considering the nets, were you able to get tested for it? Uh, I was not tested, Matt. Uh, I had not been around the nets in the way that I'd normally would for quite gotcha. some time. I wasn't traveling with them. I had a number of other assignments. So I was meeting them in cities. I was not on their team charter. Uh, looking back on it, it was late February. The last time I had flown with them. So I didn't view myself at high risk, but I did self-quarantine and uh, it has been two weeks now. And fortunately, I've shown uh, none of the symptoms that would lead you to believe that you may have the virus. But look, your family members are affected. We know that you may not show symptoms, but could be a carrier. We're all trying to educate ourselves on how best to handle this and how to be vigilant in trying to do your part at this stage and being the best version of yourself in trying to help the cause as opposed to being an issue or a problem. Uh, but yeah, trust me, within our travel circle, the Nets broadcast staff, TV and radio, uh, there was a quick reaction checking on one another. And we found out like everybody else found out there was no, warning ahead of time when the news came out that's when we discovered it 
And there is that moment where you start replaying things in your mind, interactions that you've had with players, with staff members, with coaches. And I think a lot of people have done that throughout the country uh, when when they hear of someone close to them or someone that they know that has uh, contracted the virus. It's it's a very scary time. It's a very overwhelming time. Yes, and prudence is utmost in all that we do. So I want to turn my attention to college basketball. The last time I saw you at a college hoops game, uh, and I'm chuckling because you and Jimmy Spinarkla were doing the St. John's Seton Hall game, and Bob Lee was being honored by WSOU yep. that day. So I go to all the Hall games anyway, but I was up there for that honor <laughs> with, with a man who was, yeah. I, who was very important and instrumental in my career as a mentor. But anyway, so I come down at halftime, and I say, hey, I'm going to say hello to a couple of my friends. Now, I, we have to describe it for the listeners because they might not understand all the people who play a role in the business. There is someone who acts as a stage manager. And as the name implies, he manages the stage. He makes sure people don't walk through shots. He makes yes. sure the talent is ready. Do you have the right note? Do you have some water if you need it? Are we ready to go? Is the light uh, at the proper position? All of that stuff. It's an important job. Well, anyway, so I come barreling down at halftime. <laughs> and Jimmy Spinarkle's like, Matty, hey. And I can kind of catch your stage manner. He's like, who is this dude? But okay, it's a hug. And then, um, oh, why did I, I just lost his name. Who is the cameraman? Oh, I worked with him at the Mets. Anyway, he says hello. And and Jimmy Stamos, your stats guy, I hadn't seen yep. him since doing basketball. Bad, hey, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. And the guy is looking at me. And then you come out and say hello. And I spill a little bit of coffee <laughs> <laughs> on your seat. <laughs> I thought he was going to have a heart attack. First off, who is this man interrupting everything? Why does everybody seem to know him? They're happy to see him. And he just spilt the drop of coffee on Iron Eagle's chair. <laughs> I walked away going, oh, that, was, that, that wasn't cool. But hey, I was glad to see everybody. Oh, it, it, you, you cracked me up beyond belief. It was all done within seconds. And I think we're like 30 seconds to air. It was close. It was air, close. Whatever it was. And our stage manager, Brian Jacobs, who uh, is, in addition to being a stage manager, a, a broadcast agent and a terrific guy, and used to work at CBS many years ago, then went to law school and uh, chose a different path in life, which has worked out well for him. He was the one overseeing the area. And, you know, let's also bring to mind, I've never had a sip of coffee in my life. So <laughs> coffee is a foreign substance to me. And literally, as I'm about to sit, just a bit of coffee comes over the brim <laughs> of your cup directly onto my chair. And Brian's like, we got 30 seconds, Ian. Let, let's go. I'm like, oh, well, well, okay. And now you you walk off and you have a huge smile on your face because <laughs> you knew you left a little bit of coffee chaos ah. right on the path. And it was great to see. And you're right. You did hug Spinarkle. You hugged me. Do you remember those times when you could? When that was allowed? Yeah. Where, where you saw a friend and you could embrace and you could share a moment. Uh, it just brings to light. This was not that long ago. This wasn't three months ago. This this was just a few weeks ago. Uh, Seton Hall won the game against St. John's. And look, I know you follow the team as closely as anyone, your alma mater. Uh, this was a team that very well could have done serious damage 
in the NCAA tournament. They were certainly talented enough. They have shown themselves on a big stage this year, how capable they were. And uh, amidst all of the things that uh, we unfortunately are missing out on in life day to day, uh, this is a small part of it, but one where people have committed a lot of time and energy to cheer this team on, to support their team. And this is true of teams all across the nation. Uh, it hurts. It hurts not to see the competition and see what this particular group would have been capable of, given the circumstances and the way the tournament was a wide open field in my mind here in 2020. And that is the shame. So many athletes, not just specifically those on Seton Hall or Miles Powell, but that's it. Dayton was in position to have yep. a, a great run. Not going to happen. On and on. It was such a crazy year in college hoops. The uh, no one held number one for very long. Toward the end, there was a little bit more of a grasp of it. So we we didn't know what was going to happen, and and we'll never know. Do you know where you might have been on this upcoming weekend? What your assignment would have been, or was that no? Yeah, you know, that would no. have been decided later. No, yeah, Matt. The the way that things are set up on the television side, radio. Uh, Howie Denneroff, who uh, runs Westwood One Sports Radio. Uh, he likes to have all the assignments made before they even see which teams are there. He just assigns the broadcasters to a given spot. And then once the selection show is over, you know exactly who you've got. CBS, since I've been doing the tournament in 1998, they don't do it that way. They want to see the pairings. They want to see what the matchups could look like for that opening weekend. And then you're assigned your city. So. Uh, you wait for a phone call like everybody else. Sometimes the call comes in as early as 730 that night. Sometimes the call comes in as late as nine o'clock. And for someone like me who values preparation and likes to get ahead, I'm not a procrastinator. If I know that I've got two teams that I have to prepare for because I have my schedule, I like to get out in front two weeks ahead of time, start working on my broadcast boards and uh, try to commit as much to memory as possible, uh, learn names and pronunciations and background. You can't do any of that with the NCAA tournament. You get that phone call on the Sunday night of Selection Sunday, and it's like slow motion. I've had years where I've looked at the bracket and I thought to myself, man, I really would benefit if I went to Providence. I've seen six of those eight teams. I'm prepared already for a bunch of them. And then you get the phone call and it's like slow motion. Ian, you're going to <laughs> Seattle. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks. Exactly. Do you I've realize who I've seen? Those teams yeah. and it, we're starting from scratch, so it is. It's a it's a angst riddled time for me as as a play by play announcer because it's out of my hands, and I can't follow my normal routine, which is get ahead. Uh, you you can't do it. It's just not set up that way. Uh, how do you balance the NBA and the college basketball at this time? As you mentioned earlier, I mean, this is a real log jam for you. Everything coming yep. together, obviously not this year, but in a normal year, how do you handle all of that? Yeah, I mean, the biggest key, you, you never want Sandro Mamukelishvili catching a touchdown for the Giants. Like that would be a problem uh, when you cross wires on any given Sunday. Uh, you know, the biggest thing is is being ahead and being prepared and compartmentalizing 
uh, turning the page. It's one thing to uh, be able to step in and uh, identify all of the participants very quickly in the game that you're working that day. You've also have to develop the ability of getting rid of that information quickly and not letting it linger inside your brain, especially when you're doing multiple sports. I've done uh, seasons where I've had NBA, college basketball, NFL on three consecutive days, Mm. a Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or a Thursday night football game, Friday NBA game, Saturday college game, Sunday NFL game. And you better be on top of, of your workload and it just requires a immense amount of concentration and being able to live in the moment and not think about anything else for that two and a half hour, three hour broadcast period. But uh, if if you're someone that doesn't like to get out ahead of this, you're going to be in trouble. If you're up at night, the night before an assignment, still trying to memorize names and numbers, you got a problem. There is a lot of preparation that goes into any broadcast, and you are among the best practitioners. Got two or three more questions, and then we'll just wrap it up quickly. Number one is, Bird is your nickname. Pretty apparent. Last name's Eagle, where that came from. But who gave that to you first? Were you always known as Bird, or was there a time you became known as Bird? Yeah, I think Raff, Bill Raftery. I thought that would be your answer. Yeah. Yeah, I think he was the one that really pushed it into existence. Uh, Nobody really called me that growing up and college. That certainly was not something that I recall early in my broadcast career. Bob Raceman may have written it in a column, but I'm not sure chicken or the egg, if it was Raceman or if it was Raftery that, that used it first. I think it was Bill that started referring to me as bird on the air. And it's funny in recent years, Maddie, you know how many games Raf and I worked together because you were a part of so many of them back in our sports channel days, which were just glorious. <laughs> we, Hugely fun. We had, I mean, we had so much fun. We had such a great group travel group. Everybody got along. It, it really was harmonious and, and some of the best years of, of my career on and off the air. But in recent years, when I've worked games with Bill on, on CBS, he'll just toss out bird on a national scale. And then I'll get texts from people that say, why is he calling you Vern? <laughs> oh, and I'll tell Bill, right? <laughs> and I'll tell Bill, he goes, well, I'm not saying Vern. I'm saying bird, be bird. So there, there has been a little bit of a mix up from people, less and less as the years have gone by. But I used to get a lot of that. I think Bill would hear a lot of that uh, when we started doing a bunch of games together on the national level. Vern, of course, uh, the great Vern Lundquist. Yes. Um, so you you had a chance to see Miles Powell. You follow the NBA. You're, uh, as I said earlier, a signature voice in the NBA. What are his odds of uh, getting there and playing? Yeah, Matt, I think the one thing Miles can do, and there's no doubt in my mind that he could still do it, at the next level, he can score. He can put the ball in the hoop. And there's always going to be a place for guys that can do that. The issues will be whether or not he can defend his position consistently enough at his size. Will they have to cross match where he takes on point guards? And you would know better than me, his handle ability, whether or not 
he could develop some skills as a hybrid. I didn't see a whole lot of that over the course of his career at Seton Hall, where he could play point guard in a pinch. There have been some players that have been able to do it and transition more to that role as a combo guard. Uh, Miles is not big. Uh, he, you know, he's listed at 6'2". I've certainly seen him enough to question that number. It might be more like six foot, six one on a good day. I think the way the NBA is set up now with two-way deals, he's going to get his chance. There will be somebody that sees the talent and says, hey, we're going to give him a shot. If he's playing with our G League affiliate, uh, we can see him against that level of competition. And then uh, if the situation calls for it, he'll get his opportunity at some point to show what he can do at the NBA level. Uh, the jump shot just in my personal experience, the games that I worked that, that miles played in, uh, it was streaky. It was, I didn't catch him on good days. So it's not as if I've got this, this image of him going seven of nine from three point territory. I know he's capable of it. I just never saw it up close and in person. I saw it on television I know it's there. I know it exists. But even the three-point percentage this year was hovering in the 31, 32% level. At the NBA, that's that's not good enough in this day and age. You've got to be better than that. I know how hard a worker he is. I think he was banged up in the second half of this season, and he just plowed through it physically and did the best that he could, uh, given some of the physical limitations and effects that it had on him. Uh, but if you're asking me a year from now, if we're talking about Miles Powell, will he be given a chance? He will. Uh, I think he's he's going to be given an opportunity to to play in this league in some form. But he may have to go the extra mile to prove it as a second round pick or an undrafted player getting a two way deal and showing that he can do it consistently day in and day out at that level. Well, let's hope that a year from now we're able to talk about basketball. I'm sure we will, but uh, how much we stay in this or how long we stay in this lockup is anyone's guess. Di, and thanks very much for your time. By the way, my apologies. Please extend them to your stage manager again for barging on the scene. <laughs> and but Pete Stendel, I just remembered his name. Pete oh, Stendel. Pete's the best. Oh, he's awesome. Pete was is the cameraman who was part of the, uh, hey, where have you been, Matty? Haven't seen you in a few years. And oh, is that coffee in your hand? Not good by the by the man's workstation. <laughs> With no cover on uh, well, you know, I thought I had the balance going, Bird, but you know, one of those things. But anyway, thanks so much for your time. I'm very best uh, to your wife, Elisa, and the kids. And uh, again, hopefully we see each other soon and we're out of this and uh, everyone comes out of it safe. Yeah, agreed, Maddie. Ditto, same to Maggie and, and to your family. And I love you, bud. We will uh, see each other again soon. Uh, you might go with uh, a mocha cafe <laughs> uh, with like a little uh, whipped cream on top. Whatever you do, I'm I'm in. I'm cool with it. I trust you. I think that was an outlier. I don't believe you're a coffee spiller by nature. And maybe I'll just start putting a top on. Who knows? We'll see. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right, Bert. Thanks very much, brother. All right, Matty Lock. And that will do it for this edition of Pirates Talk. With college basketball over for the season, I'm not sure what the next step for the show will be. There is plenty of hoops to discuss, including the transfer portal, recruiting, and there's a long list of notable Seton Hall basketball alums who would be excellent candidates for a chat, and I'll pursue them for a visit. 
So we may not come at you on a weekly basis, but I plan on continuing to record shows. The feedback's been good. It's been a blast for me to speak with all of my guests, and I'm very excited for what the future holds on the court for Seton Hall and with Pirates Talk. For now, thank you for your company. Bye-bye.